Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. I was one of the people we're going to be talking about today, a caregiver for an aging parent. And the number of us taking care of aging parents has soared in the past 15 years. MetLife is estimating that nearly 10 million adult children over the age of 50 now care for an aging parent. And in 1994, only 3% of men and 9% of women helped provide basic care for a parent. In 2008, 17% of men and 28% of women provided such care. And working Americans lose an estimated $3 trillion in lifetime wages with average losses of $324,000 for women and $283,000 for men. With these costs and other money issues in mind, along with psychological impact to people who are caring for aging parents, we thought we'd give you a few tips today. Here's Dr. James Polo. Hi, Dr. Polo. This is such a great topic for both of us because we're both in the pot, right? We're, we are both there. <laughs> I love the framework that you're going to provide today where you're going to talk with people not only about caring for someone and kind of all the demands of that, financial, psychological, spiritual, but also how to care for ourselves while we're doing this. So which pot would you like to begin well, probably caring for somebody else right now is where we can start. And one of the things that we're witnessing in our, in our society today in the U.S. is people are living longer. Caregiving focused on the elderly and, and particularly folks taking care of their own parents is becoming more and more common uh, in all our communities. You know, I was so struck by that 10 million people over the age of 50 caring for aging parents. That is like a force to be reckoned with. These people, they still might have kids at home. They might have kids in college. They might have grandkids there already. So this is a lot of sandwiching for that particular generation that's already starting to wane with energy concerns. And what's interesting is with the current younger generations delaying when they get married, delaying when they have kids, means that you're not only an older parent for kids and grandchildren, but you still have those older parents that are alive. You have less energy, you have less ability. And so it's very challenging. Talk to me, first of all, about your own experience so that when we know some of the concerns that you're going to bring up, how it relates to you individually, Dr. Pola. My personal experience is probably not that different from so many people. I would say that, you know, when my parents were in their early 80s and I was still in my 50s, it was little things that I began to notice. Forgetfulness with certain things or kind of making a mistake in a certain area. And of course, like most parents, they wanted to maintain their independence. They certainly wanted to maintain kind of a sense of dignity about themselves. So they weren't really eager to share with me that they were having some difficulties. I would say that the thing that I recognize when I look back on it now is that their decline was slow and over time. And so it wasn't like I can pinpoint one day and say, oh, today's the day I need to start helping. Yeah, It was very slowly over time. But once it became obvious that their decline was there and continuing, it became kind of strenuous because it's something that you have to then begin to decide for yourself, how engaged do I want to be? What are the things that I can do? What are the things that I can't do? I was lucky because my parents lived three miles away. Many of my friends have parents that are aging, but 
they're in a different state and that's a whole different approach. I want to talk about that because that is almost more the norm now where people aren't seeing their parents as frequently as you were. So how do we do those sort of touchstone visits and kind of start paying attention so that one day we're not like, oh my God, there's cat food in the refrigerator. How do people who are away from their parents keep a schedule of attentiveness around their aging and their concerns? Yeah, that's a that's an important point. And, you know, different families have a different degree of connection. I would start by saying maintaining kind of regular contact and regular interface, first of all, telephonically is important. And asking questions, how are they doing? What's going on? What's new? What activities are they engaged in? To try to get a sense of what their day-to-day life is actually like, you're looking for any signs that things are beginning to change. So for example, let's say that your parent lives five states away and their baseline has been, hey, I've got Ridge Club on Mondays and I volunteer at the at the local library on Tuesday and um, Thursday I have my walking club, whatever. And all of a sudden, you know, those things are starting to change. That can be an early sign that maybe there's some challenges going on. As a child of an aging parent, you obviously have to consider, do I have the resources to visit and should I visit and how often should I visit? Are there other siblings that live closer that can kind of share that burden? In my personal case, for example, my brother lives on the East Coast. I live on the West Coast, which is where my parents live. So my brother was really not very engaged, but we kind of had a partnership in the sense that he handled all the the financial and the legal and the paperwork stuff. And I kind of did all the day-to-day connection stuff. And so together, Mm. we were kind of managing. But each family has different circumstances. I love this discussion because I think that it's hinting to something that I feel very strongly about is that the burden of this should never fall on just one sibling. Oftentimes there's this expected role for the oldest child or the oldest daughter to do all of the caregiving. And that is absolutely not fair. For everything it, to fall to one person. You're exactly right. And and when folks find themselves in a care situation with their own parents, I, I generally recommend one of the first things you need to do is have kind of a powwow meeting with all your siblings. Make sure that everybody's actually aware of what's going on and then figure out who wants to do what. One of the challenges that sometimes in families one child may not be capable mm-hmm. or one child may have a, a relationship where they don't really care. You can't make them do anything. And so so those individual nuances in each family have to be addressed. If you think about too, even if you're not three miles away, you can do the finances. Maybe you can do all of the online stuff that helps the parent get engaged in that kind of thing. You can do FaceTime calls. There's so many things that you can do even remotely now that I'm often really irritated by people who just check out and they say, well, that person lives closest to them. It is just so highly unfair. You're touching on something that's really important to emphasize. It's better to have lots of little short connections Mm -hmm. than call once a month and talk for an hour. It's the consistency over time with lots of little connections that not only help you be connected to the individual, but it helps you gather information where you can notice changes a long time. Dr. Polo, for the person who has actually decided to be the person taking them to their doctor's appointments, making sure they're getting good nutrition and and making sure they're psychologically healthy, how do we set the boundaries to be able to not get so burned out? That's a difficult question to answer upfront simply because we all have different boundaries. We all have different uh, responses to stress. What I would say is that if you're caring for a parent, you have to prepare for the fact that 
early in the process, there will be less things that you physically need to do. Mm. And as time goes on, uh, there will be more and more demands if their decline continues. For anybody that's caring for a parent, I usually recommend, first of all, establish a routine. Have a routine that you can follow that matches with your schedule. But by the same token, it gives the aging parent some expectation that is familiar. Because mm. remember, part of the challenge is they will have cognitive decline. And helping that individual write things down, helping that individual with to-do lists, using a calendar, particularly when it relates to taking their medications, can be very helpful to continue to organize for them. Yeah. It's really important in the communication aspect not to continually tell an aging parent, don't you remember this or don't you remember that? You don't want to point out directly to them that they're declining because that, that actually doesn't help. That, mm -hmm. that actually can sometimes make things worse. And it's okay to cue them, you know, hi, it's Jim. Remember? Uh, <laughs> here I am saying yeah. it myself. Hi, yeah. it's Jim. I'm your son. Yeah. Uh, without having to say, remember who I am. Yeah. It, one of the challenges um, when we talk about this globally for everybody is that, remember, sometimes individuals decline very slowly and never really lose, you know, significant parts of their cognitive skills. Other folks decline very quickly. And so it can be kind of overwhelming. And what I generally remind folks is that it's very hard to care for somebody else if you're not caring for yourself first. That's not just support programs. That's not just nutrition and, and drink, but it's also demanding that you get the time with your own family, with your own friends, so that psychologically you can remain well. You know, one of the things that's really important to just spend a moment to talk about is that when you're caring for a parent who's declining, you're actually losing them. And that can be an overwhelming feeling that you may not be prepared for. Early in the process of caring for a parent, a lot of it is really about physical activity. Oh, they've got an appointment. I need to carve out time and go with them. Oh, they need to shop for groceries. I'm going to drive them. Early in the process, it, it's more of a physical drain than it is mm -hmm. really anything else. Whereas later in the process, it becomes very emotional. For me, that that's exactly what happened. Early in my parents' journey, it was really about just making sure that I could get them around. I could be with them. I could make sure that they were at family gatherings. I could do all those things that helped to keep them included. Then later on, it was really more about, wow, they don't remember my kids or they don't remember my grandkids or they don't remember my name. And that, that didn't happen right away. It happened slowly over time, but but it can have a significant emotional impact. I mean, I remember one time, you know, leaving my uh, my mother's care home where she is and just sitting in the car for 20 minutes crying because I realized she doesn't remember who I am anymore. And that's mm. that's a loss. It's like it's like having somebody die but not really die. The emotional part that becomes really important is making sure that you're taking care of yourself because this is hard work. Connected with your family, all the things that you mentioned, you know, being healthy, eating well, sleeping well, but also recognizing that you're going through a very difficult loss. It can cause significant symptoms of depression. It can cause significant symptoms of anxiety. And all of that is really pretty normal. So Dr. Polo, how did you arrange and how would you suggest other people would arrange the type of um, living will, the type of conversations that one must have with an aging parent, knowing that they are proud, independent people. Yes. And they do not like to be thought of as now in the child situation. So give us some tips in that regard. 
in this regard, it's really important to have these conversations early and have them repeatedly. You know, the, the average parent is not going to want to talk about death and dying. They're not going to want to talk about when they can no longer drive. But the, but the reality is you want to have those kinds of conversations while they can still kind of let you know what their preferences are. They can still let you know what their desires would be. So, you know, I, I give you an example with my mother. She was very proud. She loved living in her own place. And I had several discussions over several months talking with her about, well, mom, if you reach a point where you really can't live on your own anymore, what would be your desire? Hmm. Would you like to be in a, a care home with other folks? Would you like to come live with us? The important thing is to figure out, well, what are their preferences? Now, sometimes their preferences can be accommodated. Hmm. Sometimes their preferences cannot. Yeah. Another very important discussion to have early while they can still offer their own thoughts. Hey, if you had a sudden catastrophic medical event, do you want to have tubes and lines? Do you want to be in an ICU or would you rather not have all that done to you? And yeah. and most folks will be able to kind of give you a little bit of an indication of, of what they want. And then mm -hmm. probably the third area that's also important is that you want to try to get ahead of being helpful with regard to finances. There's nothing yeah. worse than having a parent who's managing their own finances, but they're not doing it well and you don't know they're not doing it well. Uh, and so you want to get in there early without taking over you know, being a power of attorney. Hey, let me be on your account so I can help you. And most parents will be receptive to those things if you do them gently, slowly, and early. And consistently, as you and said. And consistently. Absolutely. I was so struck by spending um, many days with my mom, how many calls she got throughout the day of people trying to take advantage of older people. How that has become such a booming industry, I will never know. But because this generation still have landlines, they are after them. I mean, from saying your nephew is stranded in Mexico and needs this much money to this is the IRS and you owe this much money. Like being able to keep on top of those scams for older people is also really important. Well, and it's getting worse because it used to be that folks would prey on the elderly uh, through TV, through commercials, through coming to the front door and trying to get them to either sign up for something or buy something. Yeah. And now with computers, technology, the internet, they're bombarded. Yeah. And so it is, uh, that's another area that's very important is to make sure that you're helping your aging parent track their identity, making sure that they're not exposing themselves to potential financial risk. You know, we hear all the time about people that have had their entire life savings wiped out because they yeah. gave away their code or they gave away their password. So those are important things to look at too. Making the sort of caregiving budget was one of the things that we had to do because when we put down all of the things, including like all of the travel costs to get there, all of the additional costs for the home and everything, there was this enormous budget that none of us had ever thought about. So how do you get that kind of comprehensive look and supposing that the person is going to live five years, 10 years, 15 years, how did you guys do that? I can share two experiences because uh, we had my aging parents and we had my wife's aging parents and they, they were all aging at the same time, all four and actually three have now since died. In my parents' case, my parents had significant resources where we simply used their resources and helped them essentially carry the burden of their own expense. And it was important for my brother to get involved early and manage yeah. that 
because it became apparent that my parents could not. And and my dad lived for five years during a period when he had no ability to even add two numbers together. So we got involved early and simply made sure that their resources were managed appropriately. Wow. In my wife's case, her father was a minister. So, you know, didn't have a ton of money, in fact, had very limited resources. And we had to kind of think about, okay, we want them well taken care of. We want them to have all the things in place for safety. What is that going to cost? What's reasonable? What are the choices that we can make? What are the choices we can't make? How many other family members are engaged enough and willing to help share? And we, we just created a budget. For the first couple of years, actually, they were able to handle most of their own expenses. And then for the last two years, you know, the family was kind of chipping in here and there. Mm -hmm. And each family has a different degree of resources and each family has to kind of decide. But I think what's most important is to recognize it does take resources to take care of elderly folks. And when they live a long time, you know, that becomes a, a significant potential burden of expense. Yeah, I, I think it's also such a steep learning curve for people to understand where Medicare drops off and Medicaid begins. And do you actually advocate for people to give up their resources? It's too much to ask of most individuals who don't have financial backgrounds and health administration backgrounds to figure out all of this stuff. It's a lot. Correct. And the other thing about it is that folks will age in different ways. So I'll give you another example of what I'm thinking about. In my mother's case, my mother broke her hip, unfortunately, in her, in her early 80s and was not able to walk afterwards. And she very rapidly became incontinent. You know, just bathing required a lift. And so day-to-day -day care was not something that we could do. On the other hand, my wife's father was 90, uh, actually 91 when he finally passed away. But up until 90, he was physically vibrant. He didn't have any problem with walking up and down stairs. So mm. he was able to be with us because we could manage him. I mean, we just needed to make sure somebody was around, that he wouldn't get lost or that we could talk to him and that he would have a sense of connection. But we didn't have to worry about those physical things. So depending on how that parent is aging, you have options that you have to kind of think about and potentially take advantage of. Yeah. You know, Dr. Polo, one of the biggest learning curves for us was learning the difference between assisted living, independent living, memory care, the amount of tricks that this industry plays on extracting your loved one's money is so horrendous. Yes. Like telling you, for instance, that there's going to be a doctor on staff and then you realize, oh no, you pay for every single thing your parent gets. Every right. single thing is an add-on, right. you know, from and, a Q-tip to and, hand and, lotion. And that oh! doctor on staff is not necessarily a doctor that's there. It might be no. a doctor that's making a visit once a week and right. seeing 50 people. That's right. Yeah. And so I wonder if you have any sort of resources or advice for people about learning this early before the onslaught of all of this, because that's one of the things that occurred to me is I wish I'd done some preparation in my knowledge before having to bathe in it, you know? Yeah. So a couple basics, first of all, from a healthcare insurance perspective, everybody can age into Medicare at the age of 65. 
unless you're actively working and you're insured by your company. But at the age of 65, you become eligible for Medicare health insurance. The challenge is you have to actually request it. It just doesn't magically arrive at your door. You have to apply, you have to fill out the paperwork, you have to do all that. So that's one burden that's taken away because those are medical resources that are available because that's what we pay our taxes for and and so forth. Now, the, the second area or the second challenge that becomes important for folks that are aging is that they're going to live a long time, mm-hmm. usually. And so they have to kind of plan, what is my rent going to be? And I'm on a fixed rent or whatever. At what point is that not something that I either can afford or not something that I want to afford? And so it's important to learn all the different stages ahead of time. Typically, there will be facilities that have all of these levels of care. In other words, you can move into the facility and kind of be on your own. Mm-hmm. Have your own kitchen, have your own parking space, have your own stuff. You're you're not doing anything that's uh, requiring assistance, but you're at the location where everything is available. Yeah. Now, assisted living has multiple different levels of assistance. So sometimes assisted living is just, hey, we have a, a dining room and you get all your food taken care of and you don't need to worry about that anymore. You don't need to yeah. worry about cooking. You don't need to worry about grocery shopping all the way up to higher levels of assistant uh, living where, hey, we come to your unit three times a day to make sure you're taking the right medications because mm-hmm. you can't remember. So assisted living has a whole variety of levels based on what your real capability really is. Yeah. Memory care is for individuals that truly can no longer care for themselves. We call it memory care because really the challenge is the absence of memory, the absence of reasoning. And these are individuals that, you know, left to their own wouldn't even eat on their own. I'll give you an example. My my mother is in memory care now and she is able to feed herself occasionally with a fork or sometimes she'll just eat with her hand. But if somebody wasn't there supervising, she probably would become malnourished because she's just not capable of doing that. So that's a very high level of assistance, obviously, in memory care. So Dr. Polo, knowing um, that this is a stage for so many more Americans, probably because they're being better taken care of in those years when they have full memory loss, what is the downfall of their functioning systems so that you can, as a person, kind of plan? Like, do you know if a person with full-blown Alzheimer's is going to live one to three years, three to five years? Can they live up to 10 years? What? How do people plan when they have this debilitating disease? Yeah, it's actually in some cases difficult to plan. Mild cognitive impairment is actually a normal part of aging. Yeah. Dementia is not a normal part of aging. Right. So there are many people that live well into their 80s, well into their 90s, They may not be as sharp as they used to be, but they're cognitively intact. They remember relationships. They can make good decisions. If they're physically capable, they can even sometimes still drive without a problem, live on their own, go to the store, et cetera. So remember, there are many people that age just fine with regard to their cognitive skills, even though all of us begin to lose our edge. You know, we don't remember as quickly, et cetera. Yeah. Now, in terms of when it is that it becomes apparent that there are some challenges, most individuals that are going to have difficulties with dementia, they won't really tell you up front when they start to notice early signs. It's mm. You will begin to notice early signs. And by the time you notice those signs, they've actually been struggling for quite some time. There's also a window 
a period of time during which some elderly folks will recognize that they're losing their skills and they will be very depressed about it, but they don't want to share that because that then makes it real. So one of the ways that you pick up on these subtleties is by constant engagement, where you can notice those subtle signs of just kind of a little awkwardness. I'll give you an example that happened with my mother. My my mother lived literally a half a mile away Mm. and our driveway was a little bit long to the house, but there was grass on both sides. Now, my Mm. mother prided herself in being a wonderful driver, never had an accident. And I noticed that she started to park with one wheel on the grass. This Mm. is very unusual. Wow. And I gently pointed it out. Oh, mom, look, the car's on the grass a little bit. And she laughed and said, oh yeah, I made a little mistake and so forth. But after a while, it became apparent to me that my mom's driving abilities were far less than I thought they were. Wow. It's so strange because it's all tied up in our own hopes and wishes for our own aging, you know? Yes. So much about what we want to be able to do at that age that we in some ways project our capabilities onto them. Yes. And I was constantly trying to get my mom to learn the computer and to use Kindle and to do more email and blah, blah. And she was just, she was not there. Not there. Yeah. Not there. It's such a, it's a heartbreaking process because it exposes your own vulnerability around the reality that we're all going to get there. And one of the things that I want to emphasize is it's, it's not always predictable. My mother has a sister who is only a year and a half younger than her. Mm. Her sister still lives alone, uses an iPhone, can oh. send me texts, oh. can download pictures. She walks very slowly and she has uh, somebody that helps make sure that she's safe and they kind of check on her daily to make sure that she's actually eating. But my mother stopped using a phone four years ago because she mm. couldn't understand what it did, doesn't wow. know what it does. So you can never predict which individual is, is necessarily going to have decline versus which one is not. It's, it's very hard. So getting back to the whole financial piece and the the burden piece and the shared responsibility piece, you got to constantly be revisiting those questions over yes. and over, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Dr. Polo, you've been so great and I don't want to take too much time. Anything else that you want to touch on before we move on? I know that we're going to, in a completely separate category, do other types of caregiving, but for the caregiver them, themselves, any other tips? Well, the one thing I would say is that sometimes being a caregiver is really a blessing. And even though it can be hard, it will still probably be something that helps you. In my case, my mother, her parents died very young. She did not have the ability to have a relationship with her parents when they were older. Mm -hmm. And so when I've taken care of my mother, you know, and she's now 87, I've reminded myself, hey, look, she's lived a long life. And I've had the opportunity, the blessing to be part of it all the way to the end, even though sometimes on a day-to-day basis, she's just a shell of what she used to be. And I remind myself of that so that I don't feel like it's always so negative. Mm, That's beautiful. I I think there's got to be some ease too when they finally do pass that you manage to have all those great years and in such close proximity. Thank you, Dr. Polo. It's always such a sheer delight to talk with you. 